welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Hello, I hope you're as excited as I am to talk about esophageal and gastric anatomy and embryology. You may be aware that some of our oral exam will be based around anatomy, so it's good to run over these uh, when we do each of these modules. So let's talk about our team timeout for today. Our patient today is the upper GI esophagogastric module from the general surgical curriculum. And the surgery or topics we're going to be covering today, as I've said, are esophageal and gastric anatomy and embryology. So first up, let's tackle the esophagus. So the esophagus is a muscular tube. It runs from the cricopharyngeus to the gastroesophageal junction. It's approximately 25 centimeters in length and is divided into three parts, the cervical, thoracic, and abdominal parts. The cervical part runs from the cricopharyngeus to the thoracic inlet at the level of T1. It's approximately five centimeters in length. The thoracic component runs from the thoracic inlet to the esophageal hiatus at T10 and is approximately 18 centimetres in length. And the abdominal esophagus is 1 to 2 centimetres in length from T10 to the gastroesophageal junction. It comprises a inner circular and outer longitudinal muscle layer. The proximal part is striated muscle, which progressively blends at the middle part into smooth muscle and the distal part is solely smooth muscle. There is a submucosa underneath the muscle layers um, and this is what contains all the neurovascular uh, and supportive tissues of the esophagus. The mucosa is a stratified squamous epithelium and this changes into the uh, columnar epithelium abruptly at the Z-line at the gastroesophageal junction. There's a couple of sphincters that we should know about. So the uh, most proximal is the upper esophageal sphincter, and this comprises the inferior constrictor muscle, cricopharyngeus, and the proximal esophageal muscle. And then the lower esophageal sphincter, which is not really an anatomically discrete sphincter, but is basically um, an area that has a high pressure zone um, and is also uh, slung by the fibers of the right crus of the diaphragm. The blood supply of the esophagus uh, is sequential, so approximately it's supplied by the inferior thyroidal artery. Uh, the middle is supplied by branches directly off the um, uh, thoracic aorta, and the abdominal part is supplied mostly from branches of the left gastric artery. The venous drainage follows the arterial supply, and that's why there is an area here of portosystemic anastomosis where the uh, distal portion of the esophagus which drains via the left gastric vein um, can anastomose through the submucosa with the venous drainage of the middle esophagus which drains into the azagous and hemiazagous veins uh, and increased pressure from either portal vein thrombosis or liver failure can cause dilatation of those submucosal anastomoses and predispose patients to the development of varices. The Nervous innervation of the 
Esophagus is mostly parasympathetic from the vagus nerves, which traverse down uh, most of the length of the esophagus. Um, They start uh, on the left and right-hand side uh, and then rotate around with the left becoming the anterior vagal trunk and the right becoming the posterior vagal trunk. And they receive sympathetic supply from the middle cervical ganglion proximally and the upper four thoracic ganglia distally. The lymphatic drainage of the esophagus, again, is divided into uh, sequential areas. The superior third mostly drains into deep cervical lymph nodes. The middle third will drain into superior and posterior mediastinal nodes. And the lower third will drain down into left gastric and celiac nodes. Uh, However, there can be crossover um, of all of these. The esophagus is related to a number of structures as it travels throughout the thorax and into the abdomen. Operations on the esophagus can injure these structures, so it's really important to have a good idea in your mind of how it actually traverses through the chest. Um, Key, I guess, clinically applicable relations, especially when thinking about uh, hiatus hernia surgery or fundoplication, include the vagal trunks, which we've talked about, the aorta behind the esophagus, the close relationship of the uh, heart and the pericardium anterior to the esophagus, the lungs on either side and the fact that you can damage the pleura and cause a pneumothorax during dissection up into the chest. And it's really important as well to think about where the thoracic duct is located as a chyle leak uh, is a uh, definite known complication of esophageal surgery. Okay, let's briefly touch on embryology. I have to admit this is not my favorite topic, so please bear with me. Basically, the development of the esophagus uh, develops as per the whole rest of the gastrointestinal tract in the first few stages. So basically, the embryo is comprised of an outer ectoderm, a middle mesoderm layer, and an inner layer known as the endoderm. And these uh, layers basically fold in the fourth week of life, which causes that uh, internal layer, the endoderm, uh, to then become a sort of inner tube, which will eventually turn into the final digestive tract. Uh, This inner tube will divide itself into the three anatomical parts that we all know about, the foregut, midgut, and hindgut. And so focusing on the foregut, Uh, In in relation to the esophagus particularly, the most cranial portion of this uh, becomes the esophagus. The important part about the esophageal embryology is that the esophagus will form uh, out of the same tissues that also form the airways. And so most embryological developmental abnormalities of the esophagus also involve the airways. So the earliest step is the differentiation of the uh, foregut cells into trachea, uh, lung, and esophagus. Once that specification occurs, from the six-week point, the foregut endoderm layer will start to give rise to the esophageal epithelium, and the mesodermal layer will start to develop into the longitudinal um, and circular muscle layers. In the seventh week, the mesodermal cells will also proliferate into that submucosal layer, which is where the blood supply will eventually develop for the esophagus. The foregut mucosa initially starts as a uh, columnar epithelium and will transition into a squamous epithelium um, as a sort of process that continues right into the third trimester. The main developmental abnormalities that occur in relation to the esophagus are tracheoesophageal fistulas, 
with or without esophageal atresia, and also congenital esophageal rings. These are not that uncommon. About one in 3,000 births will um, have some sort of esophageal developmental abnormality, so it is good to know about. There is a classification system for esophageal atresia and tracheoesophageal fistulas, and these fall into five types, type A, B, C, D, and E. A type A is an isolated uh, esophageal atresia that doesn't have any tracheoesophageal fistula. Type B is esophageal atresia with a proximal tracheoesophageal fistula. Type C is esophageal atresia with a distal tracheoesophageal fistula, which is the most common subtype and makes up uh, 80 to 85% of cases. Type D is esophageal atresia with both a proximal and distal tracheoesophageal fistula. And type E is an isolated tracheoesophageal fistula that doesn't have any esophageal atresia. And type E can be uh, picked up in a delayed fashion because there isn't any issues with feeding. Um, and these patients often present with uh, respiratory complications. Esophageal webs, we did briefly discuss in one of the previous episodes on esophageal strictures, but these are basically congenital webs. It's not really sure why they develop. It's thought that they could maybe occur from an incomplete canalization of the esophagus. Um, and they're usually located in the ventral wall of the esophagus. Um, they typically present uh, asymptomatically, so they're found on endoscopy, or they can present later in life with food bolus or impaction. I don't think for the exam we're going to need to know anything about the treatment of these conditions, but obviously congenital abnormalities and any classification system seems to be fair game for the exam. The second topic we'll cover today is gastric anatomy. Basically, the stomach is a continuation from the esophagus and runs from the gastroesophageal junction to the duodenum. It comprises an outer longitudinal, a middle circular, and an inner oblique layer of muscle. So it's the only layer of the gastrointestinal tract that has three muscular layers rather than just the two. The stomach can be considered uh, as anatomical areas. So there's the cardia, which is just to the left of the midline and commences at the cardiac notch and um, basically is the area just distal to the esophageal opening into the stomach. There's the fundus, which is the upwards projection of the greater curvature, the body of the stomach, which is the main sort of middle bit of the stomach, the antrum and the pyloric channel. And this pyloric channel is identified by the circular thickening uh, of the muscle fibers at the distal end of the stomach. Externally, this can be identified as well by the prepyloric vein, which overlies it vertically on the outside, and it's easily palpable with the examining hand. The stomach has a number of relationships, uh, which we can run through. So anteriorly is the left lobe of the liver and the abdominal wall. The lesser curve uh, lies on the right diaphragmatic crus. The celiac artery and its branches are there, lies on the pancreatic head uh, and the portal structures. And it is attached to the liver via the gastrohepatic ligament or the lesser omentum. And the free edge of the lesser omentum contains the portal structures. The greater curve uh, has the greater omentum attached to it. And the gastrosplenic ligament contains the short gastric vessels. The greater omentum contains the gastroepiploic vessels and the spleen abuts the upper greater curve. 
Posteriorly is the lesser sac, and behind this lies the upper left kidney, pancreas, celiac artery and branches, the left colonic flexure, and the superior layer of the transverse mesocolon. The picture of the upper abdomen with the stomach removed is a lovely anatomical picture which has come up a few times um, in spot and anatomical examinations. The arterial supply of the stomach is pretty good. There's quite a few vessels that supply the stomach um, and they are anastomose with each other, so it's a highly vascular organ. The Basically, blood supply runs along the lesser and the greater curves with um, the lesser curve, the left and right gastric arteries running along and anastomosing in the middle. And around the greater curve, the left gastroepiploic and the right gastroepiploic do the same. And the short gastric supply the fundus. There's a number of potential arterial variations uh, that can come up in terms of the blood supply, such as the left gastric arising uh, proximal to the bifurcation of the splenic and common hepatic arteries. Uh, The right gastric artery can be a branch from the common hepatic instead of the proper hepatic artery, um, and the right gastric and right hepatic arteries can arise from the SMA um, and be encountered, uh, especially during gallbladder surgery. The Venous drainage uh, basically mirrors the arterial supply. The nerve supply of the stomach is pretty complex. Um, Parasympathetics come from the vagus nerve, which uh, run down the anterior and posterior aspect of the esophagus. The left uh, vagus or posterior vagus, sorry, anterior vagus supplies the cardiac orifice, anterior stomach and pylorus. And the right or posterior supplies the posterior stomach and fundus with celiac branches, the celiac plexus. The um, sympathetic supply comes from thoracic six to nine uh, um, sympathetic uh, ganglions and uh, go to the celiac, which go to the celiac plexus via the greater splanchnic nerves. And they um, also carry the fibers that transmit pain sensation, and that's why pain is felt in the upper abdomen when related to gastric pathology. Lymphatic drainage of the stomach is highly examinable, especially as it refers to gastrectomy. Um, It's worth looking up a picture of the lymph node stations um, that are related to the stomach. I won't run through them all now, um, but a nice way that I remember the main ones uh, is odd numbers along the lesser curve. So one, three, and five, one being close to the esophagus, three being in the mid lesser curve and five being near the pylorus and even on the greater curve. So two, four, and six, two again being uh, adjacent to the cardia, four being along the greater curve and six being adjacent to the pylorus. Uh, So have a look at some pictures of that. We are so close to being done with this topic. Last part is gastric embryology. Lucky we've already covered the first part of gastric embryology, which is the uh, folding of the primitive embryo to create that inner tube of endoderm. Uh, The stomach comes from the foregut as well. And basically the aspect of the foregut that's going to turn into the stomach Uh, originally dilates and forms this enlarged lumen. Uh, The dorsal border will grow faster than the ventral border, which is what leads to a greater and lesser curve. The stomach also rotates um, around 90 degrees so that the left side becomes anterior and the right side becomes posterior. Um, 
and it also then rocks on its longitudinal axis, which is what moves the fundus to the left of the midline and the pylorus to the right. Uh, as with elsewhere in the gastrointestinal tract, the epithelium lining the gut proliferates and uh, completely obliterates the lumen by week eight, and abnormalities in that process is what leads to atresia, stenosis, and duplications. So uh, thinking about developmental abnormalities, there's a few uh, that can happen with the stomach. These include agastria, where the esophagus attaches directly to the duodenum. This is very rare. There's microgastria, where there's a very small stomach that's failed to dilate and grow properly, um, which is often picked up during paediatrics. You can get pyloric atresia, which is where there's a disconnected stomach to the duodenum, where there's just a fibrous band. And another variation of that, I guess, is pyloric stenosis, which we all would have heard about, uh, presents within sort of six to 12 weeks after birth with projectile vomiting. And it's due to hyperplasia and hypertrophy of those circular muscle fibers. You can get webs in the esophagus, such as a congenital antral web, which is often an incidental finding, uh, but can present with gastric outlet obstruction if it's very large. You can get uh, gastric heterotopic pancreas, which is where you get sort of a patch of pancreas in the stomach. And this can be actually found anywhere in the upper abdomen. It's often found incidentally or can present with bleeding. You can also find gastric diverticulums or gastric duplication cysts. And the gastric duplication cysts can also contain heterotopic tissue, which can present with bleeding or pain. So that wraps up esophageal and gastric anatomy and embryology. Thanks again for listening. Remember to rate, review and subscribe so other people can find this podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!